non-apologizers. Not sure I want to give a name to my listeners just yet, but anyways, I'm your host, Nikki, and this is Still Won't Apologize, a place where we can have unfiltered conversations about everyday life. I want to take the time and say thank you for downloading this episode and continuing to listen. Join me every other week as I sit down with guests or myself, uh, discuss different paths that life has taken, maybe share some expertise information, or maybe just have conversations about random stuff. Who really knows? Anyways, I promise you that you will either laugh, cry, or quite possibly give you something to carry with you as you navigate life. As always, here's a reminder that you do not need to apologize for being yourself, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, it's Nikki. Welcome to Still Won't Apologize. I'm sitting down with Jen Gobrecht, the second woman in the U.S. to have a successful deceased uterus transplant. Uh, Jen, before I even take the spotlight away from you, please introduce yourself and tell my listeners who you are. Hi, um, I am somebody who has a specific disease called Mayer-Rokotansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome, which I will refer to as MRKH for the rest of this conversation because that is quite a mouthful. But that particular syndrome is a syndrome where you are born without a uterus. And so for me, I am 36 and I am a mom now, thanks to the revolutionary deceased donor uh, uterus transplant programs at Penn Medicine. That's, I'm like, I'm a loss for words. When I came across your story on Instagram, I'm like, I didn't even know that this was a thing. I mean, I've, I've heard of it, but I have never read it being like a successful thing. Um, I know that there's been studies on it and multiple different like variations of health, but never in the successful point, especially with a deceased uterus, as you mentioned, deceased person, excuse me. Um, what is MRKH syndrome? So it is a type of developmental syndrome where you're, when you're developing, you are going to be born without necessarily a uterus. Sometimes people with different types of MRKH, I have type one. So for me, I really was just missing a fully formed uterus. I have like a small little remnant of one that started to kind of form. Um, I have fully functioning ovaries and I do have a um, vaginal canal as well, but there's another type of MRKH where you could also be born with no ovaries or no vaginal canal or one kidney and have a plethora of other, um, pieces of medical kind of problems that go along with it. Like scoliosis can sometimes be part of uh, somebody who has type two MRKH as well. Wow. Uh, how did you, so when were you diagnosed? Was it something they knew early on or did it take some time and a lot of investigation to kind of get there? So I was diagnosed officially in 2004, okay. um, probably between the years of 2002 to 2004. You know, I was a teenager. You know, I got to be about 15 and my mom was like, it's weird. You still haven't gotten your period yet. Let's take you to a pediatrician. You know, they try to do ultrasounds, but those aren't really great. They kind of did like the wait and see game. And then eventually I got an MRI that let me kind of fully diagnose me with MRKH. There was just not a fully formed womb there. Um, it also showed that like I had no cervix, you know, things like that. Um, 
And that was in 2004. So it was kind of like two years of sort of going back and forth to different doctor's appointments. And that's kind of when most people with MRKH get diagnosed in the teenage years because you just haven't gotten your period and people are like, that's odd. Let's figure that out. Mm-hmm. So most most women get diagnosed when they're a teenager. I was finally officially diagnosed after all of the hustle and bustle at 17 okay. in the year of 2004. It was actually on my grandmother's birthday, so I'll never forget my diagnosis right. day because <laughs> I was like, too sad to celebrate her birthday because it was a very traumatic thing to be told to be sat down and have somebody tell you, you'll never carry a child. Right. Like there wasn't like a, oh, there's, there's a chance. It's they're like, it's never going to happen. Right. And I I also can imagine, and forgive me if I'm using the wrong words, that almost validation that, okay, we finally know why this isn't happening, but also with, oh shit, (laughs) this is a lot serious than probably what I thought it was going to be. And to be so young, I can't imagine, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I'm not saying that like not being naive or, or not something you want, but at that age, you probably didn't fully process like what it actually meant, right? I'm assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming later in life when you probably got married and you're ready to have kids and or were plan, would plan to have kids, that's when it probably came all rushing. Um, how was that? How was it learning at that age? And then revisiting it kind of later when the time came that you wanted to have it, have kids. Yeah, I think, you know, you get told this news as a teenager and your first instinct is really to try to like, you know, not think about it. Like you want to kind of throw yourself into something else. I was like very active. I threw myself into a ton of activities, you know, always trying to be surrounded by friends. And, and you know, there's something isolating about it because it really sets you apart from your peers. Right. Like to be told you know, you're completely different than all of your friends or like you're completely, your your whole life is going to be very different than anyone else's. Right. It's, it's a very shocking thing. So you kind of throw yourself into as much as you can to kind of distract from that, or at least I did. And then for me, a lot of the decisions I made at a younger age were always kind of having that in the back of my mind. Like every relationship I had, they were going to know right away. And it, like, if that was a deal breaker, then that was a deal breaker, mm-hmm. you know, For me also too, like I had two fully functioning ovaries and I knew I would want to try to have a gestational carrier surrogate sometime down the line. And so I knew I wanted to look at, you know, jobs that would cover IVF so that I could freeze, you know, my eggs or my embryos. And that was like something I was thinking about, like in college, like most people are thinking about what they want to do. And I was like, who's going to cover my my (laughs) fertility treatments? Like those are the things that were going through my mind, which is very different. Um, You know, I was extremely blessed to find somebody who, you know, I told them about my MRK syndrome and he said, you know, that we would find a way to have a family in some way, shape or form. And that like, he was all in. And for me, that was, you know, something that, you know, I worried about since I was, you know, like you never know, like, how people are going to feel about families and, you know, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a a difficult, different path. Like, you know, that, that was very, that was, you know, something that was always kind of in the top of my mind of like, it's, it's going to be complicated. It's going to be, you know, well, well researched in a lot of ways because I had to think about all of these nuances from like the time of like a younger 20 year old trying to think of the future because, there was a lot more nuances and things to think about. Right. So you didn't really have that like normal 
kind of adolescent period or or young adult period because you were constantly thinking about this. I do have a question. So obviously you weren't getting your period, but were you, you obviously have your eggs. So you were still getting a cycle, so to speak. So were you able to track or were, did you notice any symptoms along the lines of that? Or was it kind of completely off the table for you? Um, so you are able to still use like ovulation trackers. They mm-hmm. still work with okay. people who have MRKH because it's really, you know, checking your hormone balances. Mm-hmm. It's just instead of going into a uterus, it just kind of dissipates into. <laughs> right. it, it's, so, so, it's such a weird thing. And so then I, I'm not to interrupt. I had a partial hysterectomy. I actually had to have my uterus removed because I have endometriosis and adenomyosis. And that was my first question. And I'm going to apologize to my listeners because I've told this story so many times, but I literally was like, what happens to my eggs? <laughs> like, where do they go? Cause I don't even have my tubes. And I make this joke about it being, are they like the Kool-Aid man? And they just pop out of my ovaries. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's kind of like it's it, that's I I kind of always equate it to like those things you see see to use car where like I have my ovaries kind of like floating around and they just kind of go wherever. Isn't that crazy? I just recently went to the doctor for a checkup. It's been almost two years since I've had mine, and they again something me not knowing my female anatomy. They're like, "Oh, your ovary is not in the place that it's supposed to be." I was like. Hmm, that's fun. That's just kind of hanging out there. It's wild that that ha- like I guess when they're attached to the tubes, it makes sense, right? They're attached to something, but they're really just floating there. <laughs> yeah, I I've had instances where like one ultrasound you would be able to see them, and then the next one they couldn't find them. So then I'd have to go get a colored MRI and mm-hmm. like or contrast MRI so they right. could find where my ovary decided to hide that month, like. Mm-hmm. I was like, listen, you're going to get a tracker on these. But... <laughs> I just put a little GPS chip on it so we can find it where it is in the body. <laughs> exactly. But that's, that's, that's kind of the, the nuances of it all. Right. So being so young and under, and getting diagnosed and then prepping or preparing for kind of what you envision your future to be. So you come to the point you're, you find a wonderful husband that understands what you have. And, but you know that, that, uh, children are still on the table. So your first step was to look for surrogate, right? One of the things that was really interesting is we got married in 2014 and in 2014, it was the first year that there was a successful live birth, live donor uterus transplant in Sweden. And I remember our, my husband and I were like, that is so cool that that happened, like that is going to be so great for future generations. Right. This is 2014. They did like one, it's in Sweden because the reason Sweden was the first country to kind of look into uterus transplants is surrogacy is illegal in that country. Really? Yeah. So there's a list of countries that actually have it as an illegal practice. So one of the things they were trying is, you know, if we have some alive person donate their uterus to someone and they carry that child, that's kind of the workaround of the laws in Sweden. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. And there's, there's, you can look up, there's like a list of like all the, the countries that do outlaw, you know, surrogacy or gestational characters or things like that. So for us, we were like, that's really cool. That's going to be amazing. You know, down the line, that'll be such a uh, an awesome thing for for the community who is looking to carry their own child. 
never in a million years did we think that we would be one of those people. Right. I mean, it's kind of a, so such a far-fetched idea, right? Like how did, I mean, I know we're going to get there, but I can't wait to hear how you got there. (laughs) So, you know, we get married in 2014 and one of the first things we started to look into was trying to, you know, navigate just the regular IVF process to do frozen embryos. And it took us about two years. It was in 2016, we were able to do our first round of IVF to be able to freeze some embryos. And part of the reason why we wanted to do it is, you know, you want to do it when you're younger, um, you know, for just better odds that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And also just to have that kind of time to like then be able to do more research into gestational carriers and surrogacy groups and things like that. Right. So, you know, fast forward to 2017. One of the things that didn't really exist when I was first diagnosed that started to become a lot more popular as social media became popular was, you know, online communities. So like the online community for the MRKH um, group, like community, it really started to take a lot on Facebook and like people were very active. And one of the amazing things that they would do is they were always sharing interesting facts about uterus transplants, especially abroad. And then that same physician from Sweden actually went to Baylor, Texas, and they started performing live donor uterus transplants at Baylor. Interesting. That's not, that's actually not that far from where I am. It's, it's pretty close. Well, I won't say pretty close, but it's close. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the interesting things was that the uterus transplant surgeon from Sweden came to Baylor, Texas, started doing live donor um, uterus transplants, And it was just really great to be in these MRKH groups and see all this conversation about it. And as more clinical trials started popping up, people were sharing links to apply. And a lot of the applicants they were looking for were either women with MRKH or women who have had hysterectomies. So, you know, the next um, clinical trial that was kind of shared around was Cleveland. And then in December of 2017, somebody shared that Penn Medicine in Philadelphia was doing a uterus transplant trial for deceased uterus, don't like deceased donor uterus transplants. Okay. So and I'm like, so just to take a step back, just so we clarify, the uterus came from a woman that was deceased. Correct. So, so far at this point, there hadn't been a successful deceased donor uterus transplant. There'd only been people who were living who donated their uterus while they were living. So almost kind of like a, they were alive getting a hysterectomy and then that uterus went into a live person. So got it. So I imagine the, the uterus, the deceased uterus is kind of, kind of like an organ donor on your license. Like you could use it. It is an organ obviously, but that's what I imagine. So you were put on a list basically. Exactly. Just like that. So, you know, that person who was deceased, you know, they donated their, you know, heart and kidneys and et cetera. And then also their uterus was sort of what they were hoping, you know, from this trial. Mm -hmm. So in in 2017, I see somebody shares the link for Penn. I'm looking at the criteria. You know, I met the age range, the like different medical things they were looking for. And I was like, I'm just going to apply we'll see what happens. This is basically in my backyard. I live right outside of Philly. I go by Penn Medicine every single day on my way to work. Like this just seems like it's falling in my lap. Right. I have it's to shoot your shot. It's, it's 
shoot your shot, right? You can't, you don't know unless you try. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we get an email a couple days later, you know, the team there wants to meet with me and my husband to see if they kind of want to go through some more of the next evaluation pieces for this trial. And the evaluation was a pretty intense process. It took a few months. Um, so we had to meet with kind of every area that would be sort of overseeing parts of the trial. So you're going to have your transplant team, which, you know, is going to have transplant coordinators and surgeons. You were going to meet with the fertility team because they were going to be doing, you know, the embryo transfer and monitoring the pregnancy. You'd also be working with the maternal fetal medicine group because it's going to be a high risk pregnancy. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have pharmacists because, again, you have a transplant and you're going to have to take a very regimented um, medicine you know, heavy situation because you had a transplant, you're going to be immunocompromised and kind of on that regimen of, you know, not having your uterus retract. So I have one question. So as you're going through this, I understand being the high risk pregnancy, but you're also have to kind of treat it like an IVF process. Were you taking all, were you taking hormones and doing the shots and all that at the same time? Cause I'm just thinking so, like the blast to your system. <laughs> so um, you would want to already have your embryos ready and gotcha. kind of previously done before you would go into the transplant piece. And they actually advise that because, you know, with transplants, there could be scar tissue. It could be a lot harder to do IVF. There have been people who have had uterus transplants and then gone and had more embryo retrievals because of various situations. Um, it really uh, depends, but they really prefer a lot of these trials that you already have embryos ready that makes sense. so that you're really just doing the frozen embryo transfer, not the IVF process. Got it. That makes sense. And you said you already had frozen your embryos. So got it. <laughs> um, so we actually, you know, you're, you're meeting with all these teams, you know, infectious disease, because you're going to be, again, immunocompromised. You're meeting with pharmacists, dietitians, because, again, not only are you going to have to be on a more transplant diet, because there's going to be things that you can't eat anymore with your um, transplant now because of medica medicines and, you know, reactions and things like that. So the biggest piece of the trial. And the one thing that I really thought was very interesting was that you also had to have a very intense psychological evaluation because this is like a big thing you're really getting. Yeah. Into. I mean, it's that a massive surgery that I didn't think about it, but now that you're saying it totally makes sense. You should be evaluated to make sure. Cause I feel like it's a lot like what's coming out of what's about to happen is just a lot to handle, right? Because not only are you doing the transplant, but you're also going to be probably trying to have a baby because that's the reason you're doing it. That's so how was that like? Um, so that was about a six hour process. Not only are they looking at you, they're also looking at your your partner. So like for me, my husband also had to have a psychological evaluation. You know, there was, I think it was that we each had an hour long evaluation and then we had like a joint evaluation. And then we also had to fill out a lot of like questionnaires. So like all things said and done, it was about six hours of our day, which we knew um, we, we passed, obviously, but um, it was just it, it was very like it was great that they're very thorough. Um, and one of the things that was very interesting about the process is that you would have a lot of check ins with the psychologist kind of throughout the whole process to make sure that you're, you know, mentally, you know, coping with everything that's happening because it's, you know, a lot. It's a lot. To, right. To take on. 
So um, that was, I, I thought was really cool is not only they were looking at the physical pieces, but the mental pieces as well. Right. So, so you, I'm, we, as we know, you got selected. <laughs> and yeah, it was actually interesting because for clinical trials, you have to pass an internal review and then you have to wait for them to send kind of your case out without any like identifiers to an external review to make sure like, you know, there's no biases. Like, mm -hmm. so we had to have multiple times that people were sort of reviewing our, our situation and our application. And, you know, it was, it was like, you know, exciting to celebrate when we passed the internal one and then super exciting when we passed the external one and were selected right. to be a candidate. So how long was that process? So as I said, we applied in December of 2017 and we weren't officially through all of the reviews until May. So five-ish months. <laughs> I'm just waiting. Um, yeah. I mean, it was at least like, again, you're meeting with all these different teams. So it was kind of like a next step, next step, next step. So you uh, felt like you were making progress. So, I mean, as much as it was a waiting game, you were still moving on, moving on, moving on. So maybe that's, I guess, better than just kind of sitting and waiting, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, for us, we had, we had a, a good kind of balance of, of going through our process. Right. Um, but we did decide before we were listed for a transplant, just like you would list somebody who's getting like a liver or kidney transplant to, before going on to the transplant list, we decided we would want to do another round of IVF because our first round of IVF, we only had a couple embryos and we, you know, were enough to qualify, but we were also looking at a lot of the statistics from the Sweden trials and there was a trial in Brazil and, you know, there's the Baylor trials and there was the Cleveland clinic trials and just kind of looking at, you know, how many embryos it took certain people before they, you know, had a pregnancy. We were just a little nervous Again, there's that scar tissue situation that if we tried mm -hmm. to do it later, it could not work. So we decided to do a second round of IVF just to have enough embryos that we felt comfortable going into such a, a massive kind of process. Mm -hmm. And just to refresh everybody's memory and forgive me if, if you already said this, how old were you when you were doing all of this? So when I had my first round of IVF, I was 29. Mm -hmm. When I applied for the uterus transplant trial, I was 32. Gotcha. So you still had healthy eggs there. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's good. Um, so after the second round of IVF, um, obviously you had embryos, you were able to freeze more. When were you, you were obviously like waiting around. So you got a phone call saying, Hey, you're next. Like, how was that? <laughs> oh my gosh. It was, it was such a wild day. Um, so I'm, I'm an event planner in my career and I had this big event and I literally had my phone in my hand when, um, one of the trial physicians called me and I was trying to answer it and I accidentally hung it up. And then like, I had all these crazy missed calls and finally I get on the phone with her and she's like, you know, we have a uterus for you. Like your, your surgery's tomorrow. Like it, I was just like, it was such a wild moment. Right. I am like, I'm like, I have a huge event. I was just like, 
Oh my God. Like guys, I, like, I gotta go. I gotta go. I was like, I gotta go. Good luck with the event tomorrow. Everything's set and ready. Like See you bye. <laughs> in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, no, and and I and you know, my team knew like I was kind of going in for a transplant. I didn't say it was a uterus transplant. Um, you know, I didn't really know what was gonna happen or when. Like some people are on transplant lists for a long time. Right. Um for me, it was actually only a few months. That's which was bad. wild. Yeah. So for, for us, it was kind of, you know, that 24 hours after the call was like a whirlwind. Cause it was, you know, prepping to go to the hospital, you know, getting all of your, or like we have pets and like making sure we had pet sitters and like everything situated. Like I was ready to go for work. Like there was nothing I was working on that people didn't know, like what was happening. Cause they knew I could get a call any moment and be out. Mm-hmm. Um, And then one of the interesting things is because I was going to be their first transplant at Penn, just of any kind, um, they had, I'm so sorry of any kind. Yeah. So they hadn't done living or deceased donor transplants for uteruses at all. So for any kind of transplant for the uterus, like they hadn't done living or deceased at that point. So that also you're, so you were the first one for Penn medical. Gotcha. Yeah. First, first of deceased um, and first uterus transplant that they they attempted. Um, so that was um, kind of nerve wracking, but also they had a, a film crew because they wanted to document the entire process. So you know you are getting ready to go into like a transplant, but there's also like a whole crew there <laughs> kind of filming it all. <laughs> Talk about, talk about like a shift in your daily life. Like yesterday you were working, planning an event or or setting up an event. Next thing you know, you're around, you're surrounded by a film crew making a documentary. That's insane. (laughs) It it doesn't seem real. There's lots of times my husband and I, we will look at our son and we'll think back on like situations and we're like, did that happen? That all happened, but it just seems not real sometimes. In the moment, how were like obviously nerves, but like was it also this like surreal moment where you're just like, I can't believe this is happening right now? Something I had said to my husband um before like kind of going through this is I felt really passionate about wanting to do this because I wasn't as concerned about whether or not we would have a success. My biggest concern was being able to move the field of uterus transplants forward. I was like, right. even if like we don't have a child this way, they could learn a lot from us. And to me, you know, having had no resources when I was younger, there was very little, you know, spotlight on MRKH at all to then being able to be able to be on a trailblazer kind of in right. that new field of uterus transplants. I was like, it's not just about me. It's about like hope for everybody. Oh, I love that. You're right. Cause you were being the first one. You probably gave them so much insight to continue on with the process. That's, that's, that's an amazing way to think. So thank you for that. <laughs> and, and that is kind of why he was very much on board with us trying, trying to be this sort of first ones. It just felt, it felt right. And it's kind of hard to explain, but for me, kind of going into that transplant, I just kind of had like this like surrealness that it was like meant to be like, right. I like, mean, it was in your backyard. <laughs> it was in my backyard. Like I was like, you literally put a uterus transplant program, like 
20 minutes from my house. Like, yeah, it's definitely um, meant to be. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we had, I, I had a about 10 hour surgery, um, but it, you know, no major complications and kind of woke up the next day. I started cracking jokes. My husband's like a worried, like wart about the whole thing. And like, so mm-hmm. stressed that I, and the second they finally let him come in, I'm just, you know, making funny jokes. And he's like, okay. <laughs> you have I a mean, great sense of humor. <laughs> which I tried, especially with all, with all the, the medicines that they were giving me at the time. But I mean, you know, uh, it was still, and the thing I want to always stress about the journey is like, it is, it is a, an intense recovery. You have to be prepared. Like you're going in for like a, you know, open abdominal surgery. It's right. going to be weeks of, you know, getting yourself back into the swing of things. And right. You know. That was going to be my next question. What did recovery look like for you? So honestly, I probably could have gone back to work and had a quicker recovery. Um, but I ended up taking off time because the, um, timing was like right around the like holidays. So like Christmas and new year's and stuff like that. I was like, Oh, I'll just take a little extra time. But I probably was back to a mostly normal routine for just like getting myself together for the day in about like five, six weeks. Okay. Um, terrible. It, but again, a lot of the, that time frame was going in for lab checks, getting blood draws, mm-hmm. like getting checkups. Yeah. You know, for some reason I was imagining like it took you a year. So six weeks, that's like great. Yeah, I was back Still at work. a lot work. of work, but great. <laughs> yeah, I was back at work. I mean, I wasn't like running marathons or anything like that, but I could kind of still go back and like, you know, sit at a desk and do some work and help like, you know, normal day-to-day activities, um, you know, walk to and from the train, like things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still getting a lot of checkups. So like a lot of the times, as I said, like I would, you know, hop off the train, um, you know, cause Ben was on the way to work. So for me, right, like right. hop off the train, go get some labs or go for a checkup or, you know, I would have to also get biopsies because with both living and deceased donor uterus transplants, you're not only getting a uterus transplant, you're getting a cervical transplant and partial vaginal transplant. So that so was going to be, a question because you mentioned you didn't have a cervix before and we mentioned the ovaries just hanging out. Did you do tubes too? No. So they don't connect the um, ovaries to the transplanted uterus at all. Okay. So it's the uterus, the cervix and partial um, vaginal canal as well. Mm-hmm. That's This is and insane to me. This is like my God science. <laughs> it, it's wild, but um they always are going into it as that you'll have a C-section and you'll also have a frozen embryo transfer. So you don't have to worry about connecting any. That's right. That makes sense. Gotcha. Yep. That makes perfect sense because you would just do the transfer. Yep. So So, how long after your recovery did they advise you that you can start? Did you take some time to kind of just get used to everything? Did you get a period first off? So one of the things that is really interesting I want to preface about uterus transplants in general is they want these to be temporary. They want to also show the data on, you know, short-term immunocompromised people and, you know, the data of only having to be on these drugs for a short amount of time. Because mm-hmm. this is really more of a life-enhancing transplant as opposed to a life-saving transplant. Got it. So for, for me, the goal was always to try to 
go through the process as quickly as possible and get to that endpoint of a hysterectomy so that you won't be on these drugs anymore or have to worry about being a transplant person anymore. Got it. So it took about 37 days before I got my first period. It was a lot of like getting everything to kind of line up hormonally and then also with the donated uterus. Um, but when I got my first period, I, I bawled my face off. I'm so you've never years experienced old. one before. I'm 32 years old getting my first period. Like it's I don't insane, even know what information. It's insane and it's not fair. And <laughs> And I, I, I don't know, I cried. I was so happy, but it was such a wild moment to be celebrating. Right. Um, and then, you know, obviously this is a clinical trial, so they wanted to know everything about it. I'm sending, you know, pictures and updates and <laughs> they, they wanted it all. They no <laughs> privacy like, anymore. You signed, you signed your rights to privacy over. <laughs> yeah. It, and I was like, whatever works. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it, it was wild. So the goal was, um, after transplant, having a few successful cycles, ideally about six months from transplant. Okay. So I want to say I was like five months and some change that they were really happy with, you know, um, my cycle and kind of how everything was going and my symptoms and where I was at with my transplant and recovery that at about the six month, little less than six month mark, we decided to do the um, frozen embryo transfer. Before we did that, we had to actually transport our embryos from one spot to the tr a trial hospital. So that was probably the most terrifying car out of my that, life. Yeah, I would say that's probably the most stressful point in this whole process is carrying these little eggs <laughs> from one place. In to a the canister other. that I'm like in a driving canister? down the highway. Wait, did you say in a canister? Yeah, like you get a canister. I'll have to send oh, you a photo of it. Like literally you get your own canister and you take it to one place, they fill it up and then you take it to the other. And we like strapped it in the backseat of our car. And I'm just in shock. So wait, you had to do this. I not had to like, do it. Not like the hospital. Not professional service. Nope. Oh my God. Yes. That's, that to me would be the most stressful point. That was the most stressful thing. Like I will take being opened up any day, driving around with my embryos. That's crazy. I can't. Oh my God. I can't. I have no words. That's just, that's, that's insane. Yeah. Well, it good for you wild. that you made it there safely. <laughs> made it there safely. No accidents on the highway. Um, but definitely the most scary ride of our lives. Um, but yeah, we, we went in for the first embryo transfer. Again, there's a film crew there, which is always kind of weird about oh, the whole process. Yeah. So the film crew, I know we mentioned it before for the transplant, but they were there for the, for every step oh. that you took. Yeah. Yeah. Like any steps. So transplant, you know, sometimes they would come to appointments um, just to kind of show like the whole process. One of the things that was really interesting kind of in that time frame before the frozen embryo transfer is I would go in for appointments with the maternal fetal medicine group to get an ultrasound on my uterus, but it was tracking the blood flow to it. So mm -hmm. I would get like almost sort of these ultrasounds that you were seeing, like they would record how much blood flow, like they would like hear the sound of the blood flowing and you would see the waves. And 
you know, they would, they would come to appointments like that to show like, you know, all of the data points they were kind of collecting along the way and showing how much blood flow the uterus is getting. Cause that was like a big thing about making sure it's getting lots of blood flow, like not rejecting, like is healthy and, you know, doing what it's got to do. Right. So, you know, we've got them coming to those types of appointments, you know, various different checkups just to kind of show like it's an evolved process. Mm -hmm. So they're there for the, the frozen embryo transplant too. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, But, you know, my husband and I were just sitting there crying. Like it's such a wild moment to, to be like, you know, I was told I would never carry a child and here I am getting a frozen embryo transfer in a transplanted uterus. It's, 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 (laughs) I I wish I had words, honestly, like I sitting here talking to you, if, if reading it, I was like, okay, like, not that I didn't believe it clearly it happened, but it's insane to think that we have come to a point in science where this can be a thing. Like there's so many women that this could eventually help. Um, it's just, it's just crazy to me. It it really was wild. And that was definitely one of the most awestruck moments is that like that day I was like, I could be pregnant. I could be pregnant. That's like, this is wild. Right. Um, the next two weeks were probably worse than waiting for anything else. (laughs) I'm sure I have a, I have a friend that went through two cycles of IVF and those two, those after the, uh, even just, I think she, she never did transfer, but even just waiting for the results on the embryos being a long sh- waiting, stressful period. Uh, but, um, you know, they had said, you know, they were nervous about trying to do like at home pregnancy tests. So I said, you know, obviously I'll come in and do like, you know, whatever tests you want me to do. And then you'll call me with results. Like I'm fine to kind of go whatever way you want me to go. And they said, Oh, if you're at home and we'll give you a call, can you just record it? Cause we want to know, like, if we tell you you're pregnant and your true reaction to that. And we were like, okay, like, sure. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the two week wait happens and they're like, okay, we're going to call you on this day at this time, like be ready. We'll let you know if you're pregnant or not. Which is like such a weird thing to plan out. Yeah. <laughs> but did you like and, set yeah. up like cameras like in your house? Like, did they have the crew come I, to your house? We just had our, an iPhone that like okay. my husband was holding. He's like, okay, we're going to call them now. Like, let's see what's happening. And uh, I have the recording of it. And of course, like the doctor's like, I'm not wasting any time. You're pregnant. And I'm just like crying and screaming and bawling <laughs> my face off and my husband drew is crying and everybody's crying and everybody's happy. Um, and it was just th- one of the best moments in my life. Like I'm sure. Like that's in- insane. Again, no words. That's amazing. So um, obviously it was a, were you considered high risk pregnancy? Yes. So what so did that high- entail? High risk pregnancy just meant more, um, monitoring from the maternal fetal medicine group. Um, you know, for the most of my pregnancy, it was, oh, actually not that bad. Like I never really had a lot of morning sickness. I felt really good for most of it. I was tired, but for the most part, I was able to kind of like go about my day. Mm -hmm. Um, didn't really have, like never really had any rejection episodes or really any, you know, issues. They were always monitoring my medicine levels. Like I was taking 37 pills a day. Yeah. It is a cocktail a of different, mm-hmm. <laughs> different things because, you know, there's a lot going on that they're 
they're uh, trying to make sure rejection doesn't happen, you know. So a lot of monitoring, just a lot of blood tests, a lot of kind of keeping things kind of going. And for my first two trimesters, they were mostly smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until later that I started to have hypertension. Okay. Um, so we were just kind of keeping an eye on that. Um, and, you know, with high blood pressure, the biggest thing that they're always worried about, especially with pregnancy, is preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're really kind of keeping an eye out for that. Um, and, you know, as the pregnancy went on, they were really, really, really nervous about that. Um, and I think that that kind of piece, while I, I physically felt fine, you know, high blood pressure, still high blood pressure, it's still something to be a little worried about. And then you have this kind of cloud of preeclampsia could happen and, you know, mm-hmm be, be ready for next steps. And I went in for, you know, a routine checkup and had really high blood pressure. They're like, okay, let's take you up to, you know, kind of the labor monitoring area and kind of keep you on a a monitor for a little bit and see what happens. Um, and they were like, we think, you know, based off of kind of that monitoring, I started to get a headache, which is another, you know, symptom of preeclampsia. They're like, we think that we're going to have to do the C-section sooner than we had planned. You know, he was going to be a little premature. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, one thing I think that was so amazing about this process is that you had a whole team. They were looking at everything. They were like very, you know, had plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like they were ready for whatever to happen, they knew this was going to be a little bit different, high risk and kind of ready for that, you know, whatever would come their way. So, you know, we kind of were told like, okay, we're going to do a C-section. Um, they wanted to do um, a couple of steroid shots just to kind of help with the uh, the baby and everything. So for me, you know, we kind of had about like a 24-hour-ish time. I did some magnesium infusions, which were not very pleasant, but... And they never are. Um, <laughs> what is that? Uh, what exactly is a magnesium? Um, what did you call injection? Like an infusion. So kind of like think of like when you get um, kind of like a drip bag. It's mm-hmm. kind of like liquid magnesium. It just makes you really hot, but it's giving you like the the mag like magnesium. In magnesium. Your yes, I got gotcha. you. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> it's just good. It's just good for um, everything that was going on. So yeah, go. So they decide to do the C-section. We couldn't even do the C-section in like a regular labor room. They had to use like a cardiology labor room because there was going to be like 30 plus people in the room. There was going to be. That's insane. There's going to be a transplant team. There's going to be a NICU team. There's going to be the um, labor and delivery team. There was going to be, you know, my transplant nurse was going to be with me. Um, eventually my husband was allowed in the room. Um, was the film crew in there? <laughs> film crew was in there. Like everybody was in there. They were just there for all of it. <laughs> they were there, but, um, you know, it was amazing to kind of have that moment of, you know, they're doing the C-section. My hu- we didn't want to know which embryo they took. So that we didn't know if it was going to be a boy or girl. It was a complete mm-hmm. surprise up until that mm-hmm. moment. Only a couple of the doctors knew, but the rest, like for everybody else, it was a surprise. Mm. So it was really sweet to have the moment of my husband telling me we had a boy and then we told everybody his name. And then obviously he was premature. So they wanted to get him all like situated, but it was just like everybody's cheering and clapping and high-fiving. Like this was their first uterus transplant. Like, I mean, it it not only was it a celebratory moment for you, but 
it's a celebratory moment for the hospital and the trial in itself. Like exactly. it was successful. <laughs> but yeah, and, it's crazy. <laughs> and at that point, um, you know, right before, you know, I had my son, there was a success in Brazil. But again, they were anonymous. They didn't really want to talk about the patient themselves didn't really want to talk about it. So not a ton of information like worldwide to know. And then there was another success right before me at Cleveland who also had a deceased um, donor uterus transplant. But again, more anonymous side, didn't really talk about it. So there wasn't a ton of information. And one of the things my husband and I felt really strongly about was awareness, really sharing our story, kind of making sure that people knew more about uterus transplants. Or even though it's an, even though it's an option, I didn't, I didn't know this was an option. Just like this, yeah. Like I said, coming around, coming across your story, I was like, wait a minute, wait, we could do this. They could do this, and it makes sense. It is an organ. We do organ transplants all the time. We do hearts, livers, kidneys. I just, I guess, I never thought about uterus. It's insane. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's been a long time coming. You know, now you know, years removed. Um, there's now two programs in Texas. So mm-hmm. you got the Baylor program and then Texas Children's Hospital in Houston is starting one. So they're mm-hmm. taking applicants right now. Um, my surgeon actually started their own program at UAB where they've done multiple transplants. And currently one of their mm-hmm. transplant recipients is pregnant. So that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, there's been many successes at Cleveland um, and some of those um women, you know, we all kind of find each other online. We sort of have our own little like group because. Right. I was going to, we didn't talk about it earlier, but when you're talking about Facebook groups, that's, that's where I found most of my support when I had endometriosis, because I knew nobody who had it. So I spent a lot of time just asking questions or reading people's stories because it did none of it made sense to me. Like I would get weird hip pain and I'd be like, does anybody have hip pain? And be like, yes, I do. And so it was out of all those shit we talk about social media sometimes, the community aspect of it when it comes to diseases and listening to or, or meeting other people that are dealing with the same thing you are, because it's so hard to try to articulate to somebody who doesn't have the disease what it's like to live with it. So thank you, social media. <laughs> yes, and I, that is that is something I will 100% agree with. I mean, I had reached out to a lot of the women at Baylor and at Cleveland who were either undergoing their own transplant processes or had a successful pregnancy or were currently pregnant with their various um, styles of uterus transplant, whether living or deceased. And it was such an amazing community. These women, they're, they're warriors. Like they, they, they know like how hard this is and they're such great support for the next person kind of going through it. Right. And that's something I, hope and strive to do because I think for me like it meant the world that somebody else who'd kind of at least gone through it in their way was able to like give me some insight since there wasn't much right right no I agree um I do have one question I'm sure I know the answer but just to make sure that we address it you said that the transplant was temporary so when they did the c-section did they also remove the uterus at the same time you didn't have to go back for a different surgery right Okay. So everything was all at the same time. It was a C-section hysterectomy. Got so it. they, my son was born. They're like, you have a boy. We're going <laughs> to give you a couple of minutes and we're going to knock you out again. And then 
take everything out. Now, some programs, depending on your health and how, you know, your family planning is, um, and as long as the doctors agree, they will let you keep the uterus for up to two pregnancies. Gotcha. Our, our situation, we really decided that one was the best for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was amazing, you know, after me, there was two more transplants at Penn, one a deceased one, one a living one, and they were both able to have two children from their transplants. That's, that's amazing. Like I've, I'm, a, I'm like speechless because all I, all I keep saying is insane and crazy because I, my mind just can't comprehend this whole story. This like, what an amazing journey. Like you are amazing. <laughs> I don't know if I could do this. <laughs> it was hard, but honestly, you know, for me, having my son, he is just the biggest joy, like worth it, would do it a hundred times over. Mm-hmm. Like I could not be happier being a mom. I have my lifelong dream of being a soccer mom because now he plays soccer. But no, I mean, like, oh, sorry. I was like, how old is he now? He's three and a half. Three and a half. That's wonderful. He is a rambunctious little guy, but, um, you know, he he keeps me and his dad on our toes, but, you know, for Mm -hmm. us, we just look at him sometimes and we're, we, we will just cry. Cause we're like, he's real. This happened. We did this. Right. Right. And it's something that you thought you would never be able to do. And it's, it's there. To, it's a reminder to you every day that you were able to do it. Yeah. That's- and, and that to me, that's something that I'll never take for granted. Like mm-hmm. ever. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful story. This like, thank you for sitting down with me. This was I've learned so much. I like, <laughs> I'm going to look up. We watch YouTube all the time. I'm going to like sit my husband down, but like, we're going to watch this documentary. <laughs> 30 minutes. 30 um, minutes. I could, we could do that. Um, yeah. Before I, I know I just mentioned the documentary, but before I have my listeners, um, before I have you tell my listeners where they can find you, I have one question for you. What is the one thing that you will not apologize for? I will not apologize for not taking never as an answer. I will always take that next leap of faith to try something unknown to get to the goal of the family I wanted. Love it. That's great. You are wonderful. So where can my listeners find you? I'm really active on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Delco M-R-K-H Jen. Um, and you can also find my, uh, documentary on youtube it is miracle baby a uterus transplant story from pen medicine got it and you are also in people's magazine right yes i I will make sure to link all of that in the description so people can read your story as well awesome thank you thank you very much it was such a pleasure to meet you and i can't wait to share your story with the world so thank you so much for sitting down with me Thank you for having me. And thank you for all you're doing to advocate for women's health issues. It's really important. It is. It's especially on rare disease day covering. I know, honestly, when you emailed me this morning, I was like, oh my God, like, I didn't even know that this, I should pay attention to days more, but this was so fitting. So I can't wait to, I can't wait to share it. I think everybody's going to love hearing this story. Um, And as always, we'll talk soon, everyone. And I will talk to you guys next week.